So, uh, welcome. Thanks for uh, coming on almost Thanksgiving holiday. Um, I, we're very, uh, very happy to have Antonia Grunberg back here at Bard. She spoke at one of our conferences a couple of years ago, and um, she's someone I've I've known for a long time in the world of, of German philosophy and politics and, and Hannah Arendt. Although her 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 reach is much broader than Hannah Arendt's, it's written on many different people. Uh, she has a book on Hannah Arendt and Heidegger, Geschichte einer Liebe, uh, History of a Love, which was translated into English. And in many other languages, just translated into Portuguese. She was just down in Brazil last week uh, at the book launch for the Portuguese edition. Um, and for the last oh, eight years, you've been working on Benjamin. Is that at least eight years, right? As long as I've known you. <laughs> Ten years. Um, almost as long. And uh, the book is now out in German. What's the title in German? Oh gosh. She Twilight, forgot. Twilight of the Gods. Um, the Aufstieg und Niedergang der deutschen Intelligenz. So the rise and fall of the of German, the German intelligence. Walter Benjamin in, its, in his time. Walter Benjamin in his time. So, um, I just came out when? 2018. 2018, so last year. Anyway, um, she's going to be talking today about Walter Benjamin and Hannah Arendt. So, welcome. We'll talk for about 20 minutes, 25 minutes most, and then we'll have a discussion. And uh, for those of you who want to stay, we'll have some turkey afterwards and, and right. uh, continue the discussion afterwards. Right. Antonia, please. Great opportunity to, to have with turkey after the talk. Uh, that's unique. I never had that. So the title is Twilight of the Gods, Walter Benjamin's project of founding a political metaphysics in secular times, and Hannah Arendt's answer. <coughs> I'm apologizing for having a cough. I thought I had banned it, but it turned and was stronger than me. So uh, you will forgive me if it comes up out of, the, out of the blue. In the following, I will talk about political metaphysics and the thinking and writing of Benjamin and Arendt. Let me make two preliminary remarks. I'm using the concept of metaphysics in asking about the, transcendent, uh, about the transcendental dimensions in the concept of the political in both Benjamin and Arendt. I'm not using it in the sense of a system like Hegel's or Kant's metaphysical systems. Both thinkers, Arendt, Heidegger, uh, Arendt, Benjamin, do not rely on systems. On the contrary, their discourse evolved out of criticizing traditional philosophical systems. <coughs> Moreover, both abandoned thinking in terms of systems and instead started reflecting on the experience of two world wars. The word world meaning more than in traditional philosophy. It means being existentially exposed to dramatic events rather than just starting to create concepts. 
I'm using the concept of the political as being different from the notion of politics. Politics being the ensemble of processes within which decisions are made. Politics happens within the clash of interests. However, political acting is embedded both in politics and in the dimensional of the political. Quite intentionally, I keep the concept of the political formal as an analytical category, not as an essential. That means I'm not giving it an essential definition. I'm doing that in order to open up the different dimensions of the access to the political provided by Benjamin and Arendt. <coughs> so whenever one enters the realm of the political in Benjamin's and Arendt's thinking, one is confronted with vast landscape, not very easy to analyze. Let me start with the historical background. Benjamin and Arendt had slightly different backgrounds. Benjamin was born in 1892, Arendt in 1906. A difference of 14 years, that's not so much. However, at the break of World War I, Benjamin was an adult and registered as a volunteer for military service. He wasn't accepted at first, but was kept in the files for a later call. At that time, Arendt was still a child, a girl, curious looking upon the world, but not very much involved in it. When Benjamin got inflamed by the Russian Revolution, Arendt was finishing school as a student of Kant's philosophy. She was interested in the revolutionary events in her hometown, but was not familiar with the, but was not familiar with the political discourse in Germany. In 1940, when Benjamin took his life in a little Spanish harbor, Arendt had just escaped from the internment camp and had arrived in Lisbon, waiting for, a board, for the boarding on a ship to the United States. At this time, fascist and national socialist governments had taken over, over European states. The genocide of the European Jews is, however, is more of a rumor at that time going around than a brutal fact. Benjamin's discourse comes out of the trauma of World War I. That's, that's very important to keep in mind. It's World War I and of the catastrophic political dynamics which followed. However, Arendt grounds her thinking on reflections about the characteristics of totalitarian rule. Both of them refer to experiences they have made personally. They equally share the conclusion that traditional systems of legitimation and sense-giving of human existence and of thinking are disrupted from reality. <coughs> what I'm saying is that the erosion of traditional certainties in the context of World War I has influenced both generations of philosophers, the generation of Benjamin quite directly and the generation of Arendt more indirectly. To name only a few others within this context, it's Martin Heidegger, Hans Kelsen, Karl Schmidt, Bertolt Brecht of the older generation, and Herbert Marcuse, Hans Jonas, and many others of the next generation. To understand what the notion, what the notion erosion of cert certainties means, one would have to dig deeply into the history of 
industry, of science, of technical inventions. And one would have to understand the earthquake which the ongoing first which the ongoing first world war meant for life and thinking in germany and in europe for decades to do what to do that here would take too long however one has to keep in mind the fundamental changes it, um, the technical developments in industries and science brought to this country. They were reflected in the great project of the next generation of philosophers and thinkers to find new answers for the question of legitimation, or to say it in other words, to find a substitute for the traditional system of legitimation. Why was this obvious? Why it seemed to be necessary to look for different legitimation? political systems. Because the great events in science and industries plus the primal catastrophe of World War I had brought up fundamental questions like what is really going on? What is the sense of human existence after this catastrophe, World War I? Who or what is sense giving for our life? What is good life? What is good uh, good politic politics. Benjamin belonged to those who followed these questions. Arendt belonged to those growing up among those questions. Both of them were deeply convinced that politics, meaning parliamentarism, political parties, compromising, embedded in an authoritarian system like in Germany, would give no answers, nor would they provide solutions for basic questions. The same was valid for the upcoming positivism, whose protagonists aimed at substituting metaphysics with physics. Let us start with Benjamin. <coughs> there are a lot of approaches by Benjamin to the phenomenon of the political, beginning with essays like Critique of Violence, or his theological political fragment, 1921, ending with his manifesto on the concept of history in 1940. Looking back, there are some characteristic lines within the political realm which Benjamin was following. For example, the youth movement and its cultural elitism. After having broken up with the youth movement, Benjamin opens up towards new contemporaneous currents like the political circles among German intellectuals and politicals at that time. They either propagated a radical leftist break with the bourgeois system or they represented a conservative moralistic mission. Their common denominator was an explicit anti-liberalism. To better understand Benjamin's approach to the political realm, let me, uh, <coughs> for example, in the Critique of Violence, one should look at contemporary texts which influenced him at this time. I mean, I named just two authors by whom he was impressed at this time, Georges Sorel and Erich Unger. <coughs> Erich Unger. Sorel's most influencing book was Reflections on Violence from 1908, 
The other one by Erich Unger was Politics and Metaphysics from 1921. Georges Sorel, following Henri Henri Bergson, intended to re regain a new frankness in the realm of the political. A precondition of this was that all traditional historic institutions, including the institutions of the workers' movement, should be destroyed. Only on this ground, like on a, uh, on a tabula rasa, I don't know if that's notion is, yeah. It, only on this ground, like on a tabula rasa, it would be possible to build a new classless society. Within this framework, violence became an important role, being now the medium of, collect of a collective cathartic process. By enacting a collective act of violence, the oppressed class, workers mainly, I'm still talking about Sorel, uh, should empower herself, the class should empower herself to be the new avant-garde of society, self-managing itself without needing political institutions. Benjamin uses this anarchist-like concept to underline his thesis that all relations within a society were based on violence. Another influential current in Benjamin's approach to the political realm at this time, like in Critique of Violence, was Erich Unger's monumental work, Politics and Metaphysics from 1921. Unger's point was that a new political system would have to be embedded in a meta-political universe. Here, too, we find a fundamental criticism of bourgeois politics and of liberalism. In Unger's view, democracy with her layers of secular leg legitimation, division of power, parliamentary rule, legal system, etc., would not provide enough spir spiritual sense and le legitimation. Only a system rooted in an overall transcendental reference would be able to dissolve the opposition between body and mind, body and spirit. <coughs> you may note that this is a reference to the to romanticism also. Unger's reflections ended up in the uh, utopian concept of redefining all basic notions of the political realm, like people, nation, state, politics, all concepts should be restructured by referring them to the transcendental universe. Neither experience nor acting should be the reference, but the university as the, the universe as the only sense-feeling aura. To be receptive to the aura of the universe, one should reflect it in an ecstatic ecstatic metaphysical state of mind. Benjamin was just fascinated by Unger, but he did not share the esoteric dimension of it. What he shared, indeed, was the opinion that the, the classical concept of the political, <coughs> excuse me, that the classical concept of the philosophical concept of the subject was outdated. Criticizing Sorel, 
Benjamin argues that all violence refers to the goal of instituting and safeguarding the law. Therefore, violence would not be the absolute opposite to law. However, it enables the law. Vice versa, law would not abolish violence but define its borders. So violence was supposed to be not the antipode of the law and its institutions, but its precondition. Without it, without violence, neither law nor institutions could exist. Therefore, instituting the law means, Benjamin, to set borders to violence, not to abolish violence. In a sophisticated manner, Benjamin attacked the tendency among liberal political theorists to establish a rationalistic as well as positivistic legitimation for peaceful social relations. He, <coughs> he repudiated any attempt by the positivists to claim evidence for their concepts. For me, it is not, not accidental that within this discourse, one finds a lot of direct and indirect references um, to Carl Schmitt. Both of them, Benjamin and Carl Schmitt, are criticizing the liberalism of the Weimar Republic. In those times, I'm talking about the 20s of the last century, Schmidt belonged to the same intellectual current like Benjamin and others. But Schmidt ends up pleading for a concept of the political which consists of, de of decision making by a leader eventually in a coup d'etat. However, Benjamin at the same time is occupied by working on the mythical and or theological dimensions of the political realm. There he meets Schmidt again, creating a political theology. But Schmidt's theology is different from Benjamin's, yet Benjamin feels near to Schmidt when he refers to Schmidt's concept of sovereignty in his essay on violence and even also in his Trauerspiel. However, he ends up with different conclusions. Those one can see in his manuscript Ursprung des Deutschen Trauerspiels of the mid-twenties. <coughs> in the short essay named Theological Political Fragment, Benjamin focuses on another basic concept of the political. For him, the promise of happiness is one of the basic notions of the political realm. However, neither the Christian concept of redemption nor the concept of a theocratic political imperium would be able to fulfill the promise of happiness. This promise could only be fulfilled in the precarious space between present and past. Happiness would then be the ability to gain the messianic moment from the profane world. In 1923, Benjamin encounters the wall of Marxism and Socialism. He then studies the famous book by the Hungarian philosopher George Lukács, History of Class Consciousness. In the following year, 1924, the Latvian theater director, Asia Latsis, tells him about her fascination for the Russian Revolution as well as for the Russian theater. 
she evokes his interest for a different understanding of the political realm, namely as a space in which revolutionary action takes place. <coughs> in the following years, Benjamin focuses on the concept of violence and action. He hypostasizes that concept to the idea of a primal revolutionary violence that appears behind the back of the revolutionaries in order to reshape the world. Meeting the poet and theater man Bertolt Brecht later on during the 20s leads him to a further metamorphose. From then on, the political becomes an educational project, education for revolution. Most people have understood Benjamin's manifesto on the concept of history, 1940, being his ultimate heritage regarding his understanding of the political realm. I agree with that. First, because Benjamin said so. Secondly, when Benjamin <laughs> took his life on the concept of history was the last text on which he was working. So no wonder that it uh, was inter interpreted as his, as his heritage. So there's some irony in it. It was written alongside catastrophic events experienced after World War I the breakdown of the bourgeois society, the peace treaty of Versailles, the Russian Revolution and the establishment of a regime based on violence, the erosion of the political order called Republic of Weimar, the breakdown of European democracy, and <coughs> quite personally being forced into exile and experiencing, and experiencing the life of a refugee, which meant to be a nobody without the right to have rights. Anyway, in this text, Benjamin condenses his thoughts on the political and cannot grasp the layers of meaning if and there are either 49 or 47 layers of meaning. One cannot grasp the layers of meaning this is uh, within a discourse between Sholem and Benjamin about the number of layers. One cannot grasp the layers of meaning if one does not reflect Benjamin's adaption of Romanticist philosophy being transferred into Marxism in order to end up in a theological interpretation of dialectical materialism. It is impossible to say when exactly Benjamin started working on this text. On, the, on his uh, manifesto. He often worked on several texts at the same time for years, putting them up and aside again for years while working on others, and then rewriting them, correcting, reviewing them. This was an endless process. He spinned the red thread or he condensed what had already been written. The manifesto on the concept of history goes back to his essays on Edward Fuchs, great collector and historian, from 1937, a text on which he had worked since, since 1935. It equally, his text is equally rooted in his notes on the concept of history, which he put down since the beginning of the 20s when he was planning the arcades project. 
there in the Arcade's project. You can follow his process of thinking by collecting different perspectives, perspectives from literary as well as from scientific sources on history. It was in these notes that he had worked on the critique of the concept of progress. It was equally in these notes that he developed his own concept of history following his proper understanding of historic materialism. But then, his, materi his materialism basically differed from the communist concept of materialism. <coughs> like always, he, pro he provided some commentaries for the future readers of his text on the concept of history. At the beginning of the year 1940, he wrote to Gretel Adorno, the wife of his friend and mentor Adorno, the advent of war, meaning now the Second World War, and the constellation which made him happen, have motivated me to write down a couple of reflections. Mm -hmm. I can say that I worked on them for 20 years. I even hided them from me over the time. <coughs> but these reflections are not just reflections. However, they are an ensemble of reflections creating a manifesto. His style is almost authoritarian. In front of the decay of the European world on which the pact between Stalin and Hitler hangs like a Damocletian's word, Benjamin's voice is rising up like the voice of a messiah. He harshly criticizes the appeasement politics of Western governments towards fascism. He condemns liberalism and equally social democratic politics whose weaknesses would have led to the victory of fascism national, national socialism. The paragraphs talk about the downfall of a whole world, at the end of which a strange perspective is rising, the perspective of salvation. He, gives not, he, gives, he does not give any hint that salvation will surely come. How could he have done that anyway? There's obviously no realism in it, but Benjamin insists that salvation, redemption, is possible in the form of a miraculous event. <coughs> in a way, the text is quite sketchy. But on the other hand, it is clearly programmatic. Benjamin declares himself as being somebody summarizing his manifold and diverse reflections. One could even say that the author, who kept hidden behind a curtain for a very, very long time, is now coming to the forefront to declare who he is and what he stands for politically. Benjamin stood for a totally different way of understanding the world. He radically criticized modern Western politics, whose concept of linear time and progress had led to its downfall. In contrast, Benjamin elaborates the concept of making present and past clash together. Following Benjamin, present is only understandable when it appears or occurs as past too. Sentences like or phrases like, there is never a document of culture, 
without being a document of Barbary will only be understood if you follow Benjamin's paradoxical concept of time. It is a new way to understand the past as present and vice versa, but present as past. This kind of historic materialism had nothing to do with the social democratic understanding of politics and even less with the communist doctrine. The social democratic movement, for example, worked with a simple concept of progress based upon forgetting the past by reducing it to a chain of events. <coughs> to a chain of events um, suppressing the working class and uh, following Hegel, uh, they wanted to make the world better from year to year. Looking for Benjamin's conclusions regarding his concept of the political realm, it is obvious that political action in the revolutionary sense is only possible with a new reference to history. Action does not come out of the so-called means to an end relation, meaning I'm using all means to reach one goal. However, action occurs in confronting present and past, blowing up the time, putting all timely events to a halt, so to say, with a tiger's jump into the past. That's the metaphor he uses. A different metaphor for what Benjamin, for what is meant by Benjamin's concept of time is the image Benjamin quotes from the French Revolution in 1830. It was then that revolutionaries in a collective act shot on the clocks of towers and churches in Paris in order to mark the revolutionary breach. At this point, a breach of time is occurring in Benjamin's conceptual thinking. In his view, <coughs> the shooting affects a pause. Time has come to stop. It is then that the messianic moment is occurring and acting is possible. It becomes possible when action and remembering comes together, come together. Let me end my sketchy overview about Benjamin's understanding of the political. I will come back to it at the very end. Quite similarly to Benjamin, Arendt reflected about the void resulting from the disappearance of the religious as well as philosophical grounding of human existence in modernity. In this, she follows her teacher, Martin Heidegger, too. But different to Benjamin and Heidegger, her reflections refer directly to the experience of the double catastrophe of World War II and the genocide of the European Jews. Therefore, the conclusions she draws are a bit different. As a survivor of the catastrophe, she refused to return to the traditional instruments of morality and ethics. She declared that after those events, which should have never happened, mankind had to start building the human condition from anew. In front of <coughs> unimaginable mass murdering and total destruction, the only conclusion was supposed to be to institute freedom from the start. For us, it seems quite paradoxical to suppose that the survivors, the witnesses, 
and some perpetrators and the victims of the catastrophe should be able to establish freedom. However, she argues, there is no choice, there is no one else who could do it but ourselves. And then she quotes the French poet René Char saying, Notre héritage n'est précédé d'aucun testament, meaning our heritage is not the result of any testament. In her translation it means human mankind cannot anymore rely upon traditions which were destroyed by mankind itself. So political community had to be built from the very start. But where to start and how to begin? Arendt's references to the political realm are widespread over all her essays. You can find elements of her work on political concepts all over her texts, from human conditions to other revolution, including her lectures and essays like religion, politics, what is authority, truth in politics, and so on. To cut it short, one could say that Arendt has spun the red thread of her reflections on the political in, in all of her writings closing up with an analysis of the basic concepts of thinking at the end of her life. If you look chronologically at her writings, her discourse on the political starts with a paradoxical image. At the end of her as amazing, as difficult book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, she compared totalitarian rule with devastating sandstorms raging all over Europe. Surprisingly, she then quotes St. Augustine's saying, initium ut esset creatus est homo, meaning a beginning has been made in order to create man. That quote was not at all in the logic of her discourse in the book, which ends with the description of practices of mass murdering. Obviously, she wanted to point out that there would not be a return to times which had been before, but a fundamental breach and a new beginning. Indeed, in her next essay, Human Condition, she lays out the conditions of a new beginning and, paradoxical enough, paradoxically enough, starts with a critique of modern mass society destroying the political realm. In fact, reading the human condition, you may think that this essay continues discussing the questions she, she brought up at the end of Origins of Totalitarianism, how to start from the beginning. <coughs> So she ends up analyzing how modern mass societies destroy the realm of the political and how one has to rethink the concept of a political beginning. It is there that you realize how Arendt reflects on the political. It is a realm in which human action takes place. The realm is a space defined by borders and laws and in the very end by birth and by death. The realm enables action and it restricts action at the same time. All conditions mark the space in which the world of life and actions takes place. 
Here, Arendt defines a further condition of the political. Following the Greek understanding of freedom, she argues that freedom and free action is only possible in a realm where the necessities of life do not play any role and where there is no domination. Only then freedom can be enacted. Freedom understood as human capacity to build the space of the political. It is only there that the benchmark for the world can be found. If you want, <coughs> you can interpret this thesis as a foundational idea of the political. Having found the benchmark for the world enables us to establish the world of the political. However, in the world in which the reproduction, the, the biological reproduction, and the production of things, of materials, um, uh, is um, kind of dominating, uh, then there is not much space for uh, public act action and public speaking. Um, so I skip them. So if I would want to summarize the important elements of Arendt's concept of the political, I would have to name besides the principle of space, of beginning, uh, I would then uh, have to name the concept of plurality. Plurality understood as the capacity of freedom and at the same time as the ability to create political power, meaning horizontal power, not vertical power. The discourse between Benjamin and Arendt on the concept of the political <coughs> I have summarized here has little to do with our modern concepts of freedom and politics. Arendt knew that. However, she insisted that in order to regenerate the political sphere, one had to go back to the roots, meaning the Greek polis and the Roman civitas. In the cultural splendor of the Greek polis, acting in public was what free men did. Who somebody was, was revealed in his actions, in his narratives about these actions, in the consultations about laws in warfare and in sports. At this point, Arendt maintains, firstly, political action and speaking is only possible in a common space. Secondly, political action is directed towards the other citizens. Therefore, action cannot be identified with doing or producing or making. It rather aims at the discourse about the common good. One result could be, like in the American Revolution, a constitution. Arendt also knew that the separation of the public sphere from the sphere of the private had vanished in modern times. She knew as well that the economization of society overlapped the political sphere, and yet she maintained that the benchmark for the world cannot be found in the material needs of the daily life, nor can it be looked for in the realms, in the realm of, mean, of means and ends. In her view, a new space must be created in which public discourse and action was possible. 
coming to an end then. Um, throughout their life, both Hannah Arendt and Walter Benjamin were reflecting on the deep crisis in Western thought and politics. <coughs> However, they did this from slightly different perspectives. Benjamin looked upon the crisis from a time period in, in between two catastrophes, the primal catastrophe of World War I and the impending disaster of World War II. He evoked the hope that mankind would be saved, could be saved. But he himself did not believe in his salvation, as we all know. However, Arendt, having personally escaped the catastrophe of war and genocide, evoked the human ability to start from anew. She drew this possibility from the human ability to create new life. For her, the effect of a new life created the possibility to start politically from anew. The fundamental difference between both of them comes from their different methodological approach to the question of the political. Benjamin, on his part, merged elements of Jewish theology with the reference to a political metaphysics. Regarding his discourse on the political, we have to keep in mind that all of his later texts circle around the notion of revelation and redemption. His thoughts kind of encircled the moment when Messiah could appear. Messiah taken as a metaphor for a sudden, for a sudden and even miraculous event which makes redemption possible. It is Benjamin's project to merge historical materialism and theology to provide the concept of the revolution with a theological legitimation. For him, I, use, I always use the word legitimation in, in, instead of legitimacy. I'm sorry. For him, the revolutionary moment is the only possibility to evoke the moment in which all and everything is possible. But only revelation can transfer the messianic moment into the political realm. That is basically his late concept of the political. However, Arendt cannot follow him with this conclusion. As a survivor of the catastrophe, she has experienced the totalitarian potential of the communist revolution. Moreover, she is convinced that the event of totalitarian rule has ruined our analytical concepts. However, Benjamin followed the idea that false concepts can be changed by giving them a different connotations. On the other side, Arendt was kind of forced to go beyond the contemporaneous concepts and utopias going back to the beginning of political thinking, meaning the Greek discourse. Methodologically, she is making a step which separates her from the entire academic and scientist world. Being more radical than Benjamin, she dissolves the classical concept of the traditional subject. However, 
she transferred that concept into a new concept of action as being a capacity of men, of thinking as being a capacity and not an individual act. Instead of coming up with a new essential definition, she opens up the concept of plurality, <coughs> which is something quite different than Benjamin's concept of a collective subject. Benjamin stucks to the concept of collective subjectivity, meaning class, mean, uh, combined with mass, linked to quite unclear concept of an elite. <coughs> However, Arendt refers to a theological moment in the concept of the political too. Arendt shares Benjamin's point of view that it is the sudden, unforeseen, and contingent event which nobody can make or produce. Another concept of Arendt's is her idea, and another concept with a, with a kind of theological dimension, is her concept, um, is her idea that the founding fathers of the United States, more exactly the pilgrims of the Mayflower, took a covenant before God and before themselves to create a political community relying upon its own citizens. I'm reminding you here at the beautiful book of Michael Walzer, which I like very much. If one is courageous enough, one could resume that both Arendt and Benjamin have tried to solve the paradox, namely by creating a kind of secular political metaphysics. Thank you. Thank you very much, Antonia. Um, there's a lot. I, uh, there's a lot I would want to start with. One, one, just question that struck me that maybe you're, you may or may not want to. Uh, add to is your distinction between World War One and World War Two. You you seem to suggest that World War One is the more the more important of these, or at least that's how I read it. You heard your your said you said that Benjamin directly and Arendt indirectly um, understood this sort of radical change in the world because he lived through World War One and and she didn't. And you said World War One and science technology change the very idea of life and why it matters. So one question I had is what you see as the sort of metaphysical transcendental transformation that World War One brought that, that makes it the break as opposed to World War Arendt speaks of World War Two and totalitarianism as the break in tradition. Um, and you're I think suggesting that there's a more fundamental break, which I think she would recognize, but Wonder what that I, is. I, I think she she would recognize you no know, in, in my book I, I even argue um, that the <clears throat> that the great um, breach of tradition starts at the end of the 19th century and uh, kind of concent being concentrated in World War one meaning uh, that all the traditional understanding of what is a good society, what is a good citizen, what is a good life, and so were turned around. And uh, you can look 
you know, at, at the heavy industry, you can look at technology, you can look at the technical inventions, and you can look at the, you must look at the, at the, at the uh, discourse which started among, um, you know, among the workers' movement, among artists, among uh, philosophers. The young generation, which was born in the 80s and in the 19, 90s of the, of the 19th century. So they all realized, uh, existentially realized, that they were born in a new world with old categories. And so they started rebelling. Heidegger was a rebel, yeah? and, and Benjamin was a rebel. Uh, starting with the new youth movement, uh, whose uh, uh, the protagonists of which were propagating that the old generation is rotten. Yeah, it's all, it's all, you know, it's all old stuff, and they don't have any answers to the to the problem created by uh, by the new world. Yeah, and so, and it all, and then you know came this war which was uh, a technical event never seen before. It was a total different type of war, ending with a total different end of war, meaning that for the first time uh, there was um, taken um, moral judgment on one of the... Of the uh, the opponents of war. Uh, and this was never seen before. Because before that, even in uh, 1871, in the war between France and Germany, the war ended with a deal. You know, France had to pay a lot of money and started thinking badly about Germany. Of yeah, because it was more than just, it was unjust. Uh, the, uh, and, and now it was the first thing which came as a so-called peacemaking argument was that only the Germans were guilty. And this was uh, an unforeseen event which changed the American Civil War actually has a similar, I mean, this is, yeah. I think the Europeans see it one way, but I mean, the American Civil War was the first war in many ways that one side was seen as just wrong and, and, and the other right. right. And right, you are right. Yeah. You are right, but the American Civil War is far... Far from the European consciousness at that time. Right. Yeah, it, it is, it is at yeah, that no, time. I, I yeah. understand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, <laughs> I mean, there were other periods in history where there were rebels, right? I mean, we can talk about Kant and Hegel and Hodelin as rebels. We can talk about the revolutionaries in, the, in, the, in France and America as rebels. We can go back all through history. It, it, it strikes me that the fact that there was a rebellious generation, Heidegger and other people and artists, is not the argument, maybe, but the, maybe, you know, the storms of steel, the idea that the war was fundamentally different is that, I mean, Arendt, I think, as you were, I think you're rightly saying, Arendt understood the radical changes happening in the early 20th century. And she even says, 
the end of tradition also at one point in, in her uh, in the essay concept of history she says the, the break of tradition starts with the French Revolution um, but what she always comes back to is it only becomes a factual break with totalitarianism uh, with World but War II. Her right? political consciousness, I, th I think that's a really important point. You know, Arendt was coming up at that moment of, in world, when World War I started. It was the first time, that's when she started reading Jaspers. Well, she was on Levin, I mean, that's what... And she was I'm forced talking. to flee. Her and her mother went to Berlin when the war started because they were afraid, and they came back ten weeks later. And that's, you know, she was entertaining the troops in Konigsberg, but that's when she was starting to read philosophy. And I think she when she entertaining the troops. She was in the garrison. She was her class would go and entertain the troops. <laughs> but she in some of the earliest well, writings. entertaining the troops. I have to think at Marilyn Monroe. Hannah writes in Marilyn. But she she writes she writes about the she writes about the economic, political, and social conditions in the early writings in the forties that lead up to the work on totalitarianism, yeah. and we don't talk about that very often. I think it's a good point. Um, the, the other side of it, so if the if this break is happening, whether it's at the end of the 19th century, or early 20th century, or World War One, you, you you give us a number of categories to to think about what the break means: the loss of a space of politics, common space, the law, loss of action. Um, one of the central ideas that Arendt talks about over and over again is the loss of um, immortality, the loss of a space of immortality, the loss, and that's I think fits with the idea of tradition, the loss that you that that we live in a world that will outlast our own. Is that yeah? But the the loss creates the desire for immortality and creates the desire mm -hmm. for for uh, the metaphysical reference. That is why they all uh, started reading, uh, <coughs> you know, like Buber's ecstatic uh, uh, um, experiences, like making, exp uh, uh, experiencing drugs, um, uh, reading Erich Unger's, oh, we have all to you know, to transcend into the universe and the political uh, has been reinterpreted in the sense of being part of the universe. And you know, reading this today, you think, oh gosh, you know. Okay, you have to read it historically, yeah. And so it gains some, it regains some seriosity. But the loss creates the desire. And, um, and I think Benjamin and many others uh, were working in this space between the loss and the, the desire for future metaphysical references. Obviously, Dadaism, Surrealism, many of these uh, modernist movements um, had their impetus in the, the trauma of World War I and the, the tectonic shift, the earthquake 
that it precipitated in, in epistemology and the ways of, of thinking about the world. Um, and I know that Benjamin, for, for, for at least a little while, was um, compelled by this uh, kind of surrealist uh, hermeneutic of uh, profane illumination of surreality and so on. But uh, it, it fell out later on. By the time I think he, he gave he did one expose in 1935 of per Paris expose, then he did one in 39, after Adorno criticized him, and it it was oh, dropped. Oh, you are talking about. I'm talking about the the um, the Pasigan, uh, Passage. Yeah, the, the arcades uh, project, project or, but I don't know how to pronounce it in German. Passage. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask what. Was Arendt's a relationship to uh, psychoanalysis, or what was her reception? <laughs> I, I honest, I've, I've immersed myself in Benjamin because I'm writing something on it. But Arendt, I, I, I would like to know what she was strictly against. She was strictly against. Yeah, I, yeah. I would think so. Yeah. Whereas Benjamin, uh, there is a little remark saying. Oh gosh, these days Asia Nazis talk to me about psychology. Mm -hmm. I should work about it. Mm -hmm. So it's it's uh, you know it's a thread, and it lays there, but he doesn't work about uh, mm -hmm. on it. Mm -hmm. um, but he is uh, he's very curious mm -hmm. about about everything about every perspective on this world about mm -hmm. you know and he would he would even have um, been um, tec technical a digital nerd for a time yeah. you know just to play with the instruments yeah. to, to understand how it works mm -hmm. and then starting to to harshly criticize it mm -hmm. probably. <laughs> yeah so he was um, yeah in a way he was he has uh, some elements of a curious child. Mm. <laughs> he has kept this all his all his life. Yeah. So, so you kind of you kind of trace part of the intellectual development of Benny Mean and the different philosophical traditions he was engaging with over time. And I've always kind of understood there to be a break between the early work that was informed by the anarcho-syndicalists to the kind of introduction to Marxism in 1923, the early 20s, and then his time in Russia, which changes, and the character of his work changes radically. The Critique of Violence essay, which is marvelous, really is a kind of anomaly within the body of his larger work. I've always thought. So in Arendt we get a kind of idea of politics. She talks about politics as something that we do together in concert. You talked about um, the space of appearance. Politics enacts new beginnings and it requires, it, re it depends upon plurality in the human condition. She At the beginning she says that political action is you know based upon this notion of plurality, right? That's the fundamental character of it. Um, but we don't ever get that idea of politics, I think, in Benjamin. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you can maybe tease how you see their, their, their physical kind of material understandings of politics in conversation with, other, with, with each other. Because Arendt's, I think, was largely developed after she emigrated to America 
Whereas, I mean, in Benjamin, I think we see, we tend to get it in his, like, critique of Carl Schmitt and the origin of German tragic drama when he's talking about uh, how sovereignty functions and how we can undermine sovereign authority. Yeah, well, you said it before, there are several uh, periods of his uh, political thinking. He's coming out of uh, post-Platonism and uh, <clears throat> following the concept of, uh, you know, that the uh, that the truth in politics is to be found in ideas, mm -hmm. yeah. And this, as she says, um, radically changes uh, the deeper he goes into the revolutionary thinking of the Russian Revolution. So, yeah, it starts in 19, after reading Lukács, and then comes Asia Nazis, and then comes um, Bertolt Brecht. And, but you know, he's like, like somebody who has at least 50 ears mm. and antennas <laughs> and, and getting it all mm. and it swirls around him and he, 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 he mixes it, he merges it, he, he uh, digs deep into the uh, uh, debates in Berlin in the political circles both on the on the conservative side and on the revolutionary side. So he goes to political debates, public debates, and um, and sharpens his concept. But and, and I don't know when that starts uh, precisely. But at a certain point, he's got a mission. Yeah, he's got a mission, a mission to to merge um, historic materialism with um, political acti action. And yeah, and then come the surrealists and... Uh, but where do you see that, that notion of political action like for Benjamin? And what, what, how does that... Yeah, let me, let yeah. me just finish. Mm -hmm. okay. it's, it's about... Um, it's about when he, when he talks about, for example, when he talks about the masses. You know, and this is something he takes from the Surrealists, not only from the Russian Revolution. So the masses, the 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 the, the uh, uh, notion is the innovation of the masses, the moment in which the revolutionary spirit gets into the masses and um, and touches them. Bodily, yeah. So it's 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 a very, <laughs> in a way, it's a very existential uh, uh, concept. And you may say, "Gosh, this crazy," you know. But touching these questions, I think, is 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 essential because what is what is the fascination of the masses? What does that mean? I mean, and 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 he really he. Uh, picks up the concept of the masses in order to make it a substitute of the old concept of subjectivity. It's not anymore the indiv individual, but, but the masses, which get the 
spirit. spirit. Is that what's happening in Europe today? <laughs> Can I just ask which text, like, which your... <laughs> yeah, it's texts about uh, surrealism. Mm -hmm. uh, not his texts about Moscow and the revolution there. Yeah. Okay. It's more, yeah, it's more the, yeah, and, and I think we all don't know um, how his process of thinking was influenced from time to time by his drug experiences. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm not saying just, you know, okay, you took my drugs, but he did it intentionally to widen his capacity to, to think, his capacity to imagine political action. Yeah. Okay, again, you can say, God, crazy, yeah. Um, so, um, and we don't know how much really it influenced, but it did. Because he, you know, jumping all the way, jumping from, you know, from, from, from one world into the other and, uh, and, and uh, being, yeah. No. Was this in Paris or in Germany when he was doing hashish? <laughs> what is it hashish? I mean, what drugs was not he doing? Not only, not yeah. only. No, it started in the uh, second half of of the twenties, uh -huh. and um, he always had people who made the protocol. Right. So he didn't rely upon his um, upon the doctor, but invited, for example, <laughs> one day. He invited Ernst Bloch to do the protocol, or he invited his cousin, Leon Wissing, uh, to do it, or he invited um, Jacques Seltz, the French, with whom he shared uh, opium uh, experiences in cocaine. And he, he, he in his diary, he, he wrote that down, what, what happened with the perception of colors, for example. And yeah, it's, it's um, he constantly tries to open up other worlds, other dimensions of... of does, does Arendt know this, I assume, about Benjamin, and how does she respond to that, I'm wondering? Not you. I imagine she did when they were spending time together in Paris and she was <coughs> at the cafes with Sartre and Camus and Bataille and Benjamin. They were all engaging in these, Not, I don't think Arendt did, but they were engaged, a lot of them were engaging in these protocols. But I, I don't think that uh, he had enough money to make drug experience at the drug, the drug, addiction. No, um, experimental experiments, experiments yeah. in, in Paris. But what was common at that time uh, was this was the state of affair in, in, in medical um, practices was um, taking morphine or morphine? Morphine. Morphine. <coughs> and that Barak knew. Mm -hmm. And he took it against his uh, heart disease and against other. Uh, Against, I think, against oppression and all that. 
Uh, th thanks for a really interesting uh, talk. I have two questions. The first returns to and extends something that Roger had asked, and the second in a different direction. It's, the first is I'm trying to, uh, you were talking about how both figures are responding to the erosion of traditional certainties, as you put it. And maybe there's a distinction of whether that's uh, located at the First World War or the Second World War. And then Roger was saying one can go back. And I'm wondering how much um, is at stake. I and mean, if one thinks historically the um, Kantz-Copernican revolution is responding to the erosion of certainties or Scientific Revolution, Galileo is responding to the erosion of certainties, yeah. or Augustine is responding to the erosion of certainties, sure. or Plato and Aristotle are responding to the erosion of archaic certainties. So I, it, it feels to me, I don't see that, I don't understand myself why the, the contemporary moment that they're speaking about feels like a, a more profound um, like that's the break, so the tradition goes all the way back in a kind of unbroken way to Plato and Aristotle. Um, but this is the moment, the, at the, either at the French Revolution or um, at the, uh, the point of the two world wars, that the real break happens. So the first question would be whether, uh, how you understand that and how much you think rides on the question of when that break is said to have happened. And the second question is uh, for Arendt, you were saying, uh, that the the sudden unforeseen contingent uh, moment, the moment of the arising of something, something that's su sudden and contingent and unforeseen, is the version of is what is metaphysical in your uh, in the way you're talking about it for her. And I'm wondering why use that language to talk about it. Why say that that I, I understand contingent unforeseen, and I know like that it's a, a miracle that that language comes up. Um, in uh, the way she talks about it sometimes, but I wonder for you why metaphysical is the way to talk about uh, that aspect of her thinking. Yeah, starting with the second question. Um, I think um, aren't herself uses uh, the um, the word miraculous and miraculous is something which cannot be explained so I think this is uh, this is the basis of why I'm referring to a metaphysical uh, dimension it's something uh, which cannot be explained, cannot be derived rationally, but but it happens. Where does it come from? Nobody knows. And this reference to where does it come from? Why does it come now? I mean, that is a kind of uh, uh, metaphysical dimension. Um, so you may say that it's too, too simple to name it uh, metaphysical. But um, for example, the, the Hungarian revolution of, of 56, uh, as has been the revolution of 89, these were miraculous events. Everybody could see in the years before 
how the erosion of the communist systems went on and on and on. And nobody knew if ever uh, a revolution would happen. And then it came within two years in whole Eastern, Eastern Europe. So this is this, these unforeseen uh, events which bring us to rethink the political, which bring us to a point of a new beginning, of the possibility of, an, of a new beginning. I think this, for me, this is a metaphysical uh, dimension. And if I may just follow up on that, would it be accurate to say what you specified at the beginning, <laughs> that metaphysical was correlated with transcendent? What is transcendent is what what is transcended is rational account giving. Is that accurate? Rational account giving is uh, uh, the reference uh, the the reduction of what is important to the to the factual reality. And um, I mean, what I'm referring is basically the reference to the uh, to the to a world or to a dimension which is not here and which is not um, rational. But I'm not saying that uh, this is an esoteric uh, uh, dimension. I'm just saying it's a constant question, it always comes again, yeah, where do we come from, where are we going, uh, what is, uh, you know, what comes at, um, to substitute uh, religion and, and uh, sense-seeking. Can I join the conversation at this juncture, because I think, I found your argument that there's some kind of Secularization of immortality plausible, and that we might we might call that the secularization of immortality in a rent, or the metaphysicalizing of politics, or giving uh, politics this additional eternal dimension that used to belong to metaphysics proper or to, to the Judeo-Christian religious tradition. Um, so I think that's two ways of describing the same thing, and, and you import some of the same metaphysical distinctions into, so the distinction of body and soul, I think, where the hierarchy of body and soul gets imported in Arendt in a weird way, even as there's things in Arendt that I think you maybe are sensing, like, resist something like a metaphysics or insistence on um, action and plurality, primarily. Mm -hmm. um, but my, the question that I wanted to frame with that is whether you think this notion of a politics that aims at immortality is still a viable one, or whether, since the rupture that we are facing now is really the rupture of the Anthropocene, and this moment in which um, climate catastrophe is putting human global survival into question, that's like the, the, the rupture and the catastrophe that I think we're struggling with politically. And so it seems like potentially immortality is less the political horizon for us, less the political metaphysics for us, than a simple metaphysics of, or, or, or rather a simple physics of survival. Simple physics, right? Yeah. Um, and so can we get, can we do away with a metaphysics? Can we do away with immortality? Is that still a viable political horizon for us? Or do we need to actually start to articulate a politics of survival, reproduction, 
those things that uh, were secondary. Well, we will experience it. At the moment, the, the wave, you know, the wave goes uh, into the current of uh, our problem is surviving, our problem is uh, uh, keeping nature uh, uh, kind of sane, and, uh, and, um, but uh, we barely touch the question of capitalism. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So and what um, what kind of makes me a bit nervous is the primacy of the biological, and uh, that's what for one. In, in Iran or today? No, or? Uh, no, today. Uh -huh. um, sorry, it sounds maybe a bit provocative. Um, and the other thing is that the idea of or the paradigm of what good politics is reminds me, and again I'm being provocative, sorry for that, uh, reminds me, you know, of ideas calling for the Maßnahmestaat, yeah, for the, for the state acting mm -hmm. now, mm. for now and then, immediately, mm. without, you know, the slowing down of political processes without balancing um, factions, fractions. And, um, um, and there is a lot of, yeah, a lot of nervosity, a lot of, um, and also a bit of naivety in, in, in the call for, for institutions who can act immediately. Yeah. Uh, so um, I'm I'm very much interested in this discourse, but I'm I'm viewing also its critical sides, its critical aspects. Yeah. There's so much. It's so complex. There's so much to say. I suppose there's a point maybe at which survival and immortality become the same, right? If we're able to survive, that ensures a form of immortality for the human thing. So maybe it's less of a, of a question um, in that respect. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, and this is, you know, in this context, Aaron is totally outdated. What do you mean by that? <laughs> no, I mean, for her survival... Now you're being provocative. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> mean by that? I mean, for our survival is the opposite of immortality, right? And uh, survival in the sense of a life cycle is 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 what is what ants have. Right. Um, it's not what humans have. Um, no, I mean, she says it very clearly. And uh, so the idea that you would survive, that immortality would be attained through species survival, is for her is the de is the death of humanity and the uh, death of politics and the death of politics. So when you when you say she's outdated, are you suggesting that we would move towards a species level animalization? Or? No, <laughs> I didn't. No. I was trying to understand what you were saying. No, what I what I was saying is that in within this context of reducing all. Uh, of reducing the political to the um, biological uh, surviving um, in so this context, Arendt is outdated. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can see no point where where 
I mean, it's up to us now. It's not up to others. It's up to us to find answers and, and to, 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 to criticize the limits of the ecological discourse. But she, she begins the human condition <laughs> by reflecting on space travel and thinking right. about our worldly alienation and how we you know have this kind of longing to be liberated from earth yeah. which is our home but now it's just it's kind of flipped it's not that we might of our own will release ourselves from bondage to the earth which changes our worldview it's that we're actually making the earth in habitable uninhabitable uninhabitable for i've been talking all day uninhabitable for ourselves but so i think it's but I think it's 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 kind of an opposite side of the coin that she that she was reflecting on there. But immortality for Aryan, I've I always think about it in terms of remembering that we have a right to appear and that we have a right to be right. that we have a right to be remembered and and so less in terms of the transcendental horizon of of ensured existence, which sure in our own in our own I think imagination might might extend out in that way, but is is also somewhat different than a theological transcendence, perhaps. That's a good point. I was just going to say that's the sense in which I meant that if we were to be the generation that solves climate change, <laughs> then we would be remembered for that heroism and that sense. Right. So that's the point yeah. of survival yeah. and immortality. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Immortality is not only... Yeah to be remembered, but to be deserved to be remembered. Right. And thus, it, mm -hmm. it, brings, it brings in the whole idea of greatness, yeah. which is provocative in the, <laughs> in the RN. I mean, so are you suggesting that, I'm just trying to, are you suggesting that we embrace her idea of greatness or, or have to go beyond her idea of greatness? It, or is that not what you were talking about? Both. Both. Yeah. Um, say more about that, maybe. If you might, if you want, if you would. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, um, <laughs> um. Yeah, I kind of um, say it again. I lost. I, you said you, you you said both when I said are you saying we should embrace her idea of greatness and of desert deserving to be remembered, or get beyond it, and you said both, and I'm just wondering what that might mean. Yeah, I mean, um, we are relying upon Arendt uh, as Arendt relied upon the Greeks, you know, we are quoting her, <laughs> we are referring to her, we, we love, maybe we love the veracity of what she says. And uh, I'm not talking about truth, I'm talking about veracity. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and at the same time, we have to find our way. So, um, so I mean, it, 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 it is not enough to, to quote Arendt in saying that um, reducing politics to the biological is the death of, uh, of the political. It's, it's true, but still we have I think we have to <clears throat> we have to regain and to rethink the political uh, Roger, let me say it in German. Yeah. Um, ich habe den Eindruck, dass man das politische 
dem Biologischen abgewinnen muss, dass man das Politische dem Sozialen abgewinnen muss, also den, 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 die, die politische Dimension auf Fragen, die nicht politisch sind. Ja. So, ja. Abgewinnen ist... Is, uh Abgewinnen ist ein Wort, das ich mit Trouble habe. <laughs> Abgewinnen, to, to defeat or, or to... No, pick up and... Regain. To win, to win out from, from it, to bring This out from it. This is the hand gesture. <laughs> yeah. to, pull out, to pull out from it and pull out from it. Yeah. Yeah, to maybe. draw out from it and save from it or something. Yeah, maybe. This okay. Is so we have to pull out or draw out from the biological. So what is the, the, what is the political dimension in the Arantian sense of... Um, of the uh, environmental... You have to rescue movement. from that. The wreckage of history. Maybe rescuing. The rescue is, from that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The, the political dimension. So they're from, from this discourse, find in it what is truly political and draw that. That would be the Arendtian yeah. move. If I yeah. Which is how question. she describes it in the essay Walter Benjamin. Mm. <laughs> Not uncoincidental, I think. Um... We're at 6.30, which would be do, a big time to end unless there's a Matt, final question. Matt, Sophie, Claire, or Duncan have any questions? Mm -hmm. to call on my, my students mm -hmm. who have arrived. You don't have to. I just wanted to make sure you, you had a question. We're good. Thank you very much, Antonio. That was great. Thank you. Thank you.